Riding over the fertile soil of his fields with gang plows pulled by his tractor. I'll take it now for a few hours, Dad. Finished 25 acres yesterday, Tom. Ought to be done by Saturday night. Fire will come. Farm Commons podcast, and this is our second episode on employment law. We have two episodes on employment law, and if you haven't listened to the first one, you might want to do that. If you did listen to the first part of employment law, that's the last episode, you might recall that employment law is stricter than other kinds of law. Parties have the freedom to negotiate sales contracts or partnerships, but employment law is different. If workers work on your farm, there are as my colleague Aaron Hannum from Farm Commons says, hard realities. I'm Aaron Hannum, and I'm a research attorney for Farm Commons, and we provide legal support and education to small farmers. Farmers are very confused when they hear that really kind of the answer to the fact that whether they can have interns and volunteers is really no in the sense of the law that you need to, for the most part, if minimum wage requirements are in place and workers' compensation laws are required, that they actually need to comply with those requirements for the most part with their interns and and in some cases the volunteers as well. And that can be a real hard reality for farmers to face. So I think getting workers' compensation is certainly one of the big ones for sure. Uh, And another one is also, you know, paying um, at least minimum wage to your workers as well can really help prevent you from getting into issues there. So we want to concentrate on things that reduce risk. First, simply paying up, paying the people that work on your farm at least minimum wage. If that means you have to pay taxes and other items, that's fine. Consider it a form of liability insurance. You're complying with the law, and that might be helpful if you're ever in a legal dispute. Also, knowing how to classify your workers. In the last episode, we talked about the very important distinction between employees and independent contractors. Uh, It's important because those who work on the farm are very likely to be one or the other. On this episode, we'll discuss a small space of exception to that. People you might uh, categorize as interns, volunteers, or apprentices. And next, you want to insure your workers including through workers' compensation when appropriate. And that's another risk management technique. As Professor Mike Duff says, these laws are swords and shields at the same time. The thing to remember is that most of these statutes function both as a sword and a shield. And I think workers' comp is a really good example of that. So as a small employer, if you are subject to the workers' comp laws, it's very true that that may mean you have to pay workers' comp insurance and your your costs go up. But what you get in return is what every employer gets in return, which is you are shielded from uh, tort suits. Employee manuals are a good idea, too. And there's a lot more. We just don't have time to discuss it all here. But you can find it on our web pages, and we cover it in webinars and as part of day-long workshops that we do. We'll talk about resources at the end of the podcast. But for now, let's hear a little more about interns, volunteers, and apprentices. Farm Commons does a lot of work on employment law, and farmers tend to have a lot of questions about all different aspects of employment law, but perhaps 
the most vexing issue that farmers come across is the issue of interns and apprentices on their farm. And it's really under, it's very understandable that farmers are confused about this issue because what is generally accepted in the farming community and in the business community as a whole when it comes to interns and apprentices is not necessarily what the law requires. Oftentimes farmers will get the hint or the idea or pick up from some source that maybe there are rules that apply to interns and apprentices. And then they start they start inquiring more and then they become even more confused because when someone tells you oh no everything that's you know every, everything you think you know is wrong you know then your brain sort of starts hurting you know you have to follow that rabbit hole and it is a long and deep rabbit hole uh, farm commons works really hard to try and sort out those issues for farmers um, but we're even hindered by the complexity of of interns and apprentices as a legal subject that was our executive director rachel armstrong where employment law and many other legal issues are concerned Rachel likes to say that if it looks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. So the question from a risk management standpoint is, uh, will interns look like they're working in a way that looks like traditional employment? Because if so, they're not going to be seen as interns uh, or apprentices or volunteers. And so you risk all kinds of problems like back wages, taxes, and penalties, as well as potential civil suits, all kinds of issues. First, a very brief note on what exactly is an apprenticeship. Apprenticeship might be described as a, a special kind of work internship. Many organizations use the term intern and apprentice interchangeably, but there are federal requirements for what constitutes an apprenticeship. You need a written plan. A curriculum, you're subject to periodic review, proper supervision is required, and most importantly this, and I quote, the entry wage must not be less than the minimum wage prescribed by the Fair Labor Standards Act where applicable unless a higher wage is required by other applicable federal law, state law, respective regulations, or by collective bargaining agreement. That's directly from federal law. So just Google labor standards for the registration of apprenticeship programs to learn more about those requirements. Rogue Farm Corps, uh, whose uh, education director Megan Fearman will hear from in a few minutes, Rogue Farm Corps offers internships uh, to less experienced uh, farm students and apprenticeships to more experienced farming students. And those apprenticeships offer monthly stipends or hourly wages. As for internships, the laws are a little more in flux. It's an area that's very much in, um, in flux right now. There are a lot of intern-related disputes that have been going on in, in recent years. So it's even difficult for us to say, what is farm internship or apprentice law? And the fact that the laws are changing so much might make internships seem risky, but they're only risky if you treat interns as regular workers. You shouldn't do that. Instead, you want to primarily be seen as educating interns. If you just need more work on the farm, you should just pay a farm worker. So let's talk to an experienced farmer who remembers what it's like to be an intern in a context where she didn't get paid, didn't receive institutional support, uh, this is Josie. My name is Josie Erskine. I have a diverse 
perhaps you would call micro farms in Boise, Idaho. We're certified organic. We grow vegetables and berries and herbs and flowers. We raise eggs or chickens for eggs. Off and on, we've raised other animals for meat production, and we do hard cider. Hard cider sounds pretty delicious right now. Uh, in a few minutes, Josie is going to help us discuss volunteers, but first, here's her internship experience. I had very good intern experiences and got to work for delightful people, yet I wasn't compensated for my work financially, and it, um, it put us in debt. Um, so we left the internship in debt because we weren't making any money, so we um, kind of used credit cards to support that. Mm-hmm. internship endeavor. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that what I was participating in was a form of cheap labor, which has functioned in the United States or worldwide in labor for a very, very long time. If the labor's free, then the food can be cheap. It doesn't have to be representational of what the true costs are. And so it just keeps putting farming behind. I did learn a lot, and I loved my experience, but I don't know if I needed to go in debt to experience that. The moral of this story seems to be that people who do real work need to really get paid or have some kind of funding available so that they don't end up literally paying to work. Megan Furman, who directs education programs for Rogue Farm Corps in Oregon, agrees. My name is Megan Fairman, and I'm the Education Program Director for the Rogue Farm Corps. Uh, we are an educational nonprofit that works to train the next generation of farmers and ranchers, and we do that through hands-on educational programming on, on host farms throughout the state of Oregon. Megan says that if you want workers, you should hire workers. Uh, but if you want to help train new farmers, you should do a legitimate internship program like the kind Rogue Farm Corps offers. This isn't about work, and this isn't about meeting labor needs. You know, if, if that's what your farm needs, then go out and hire, figure out a way to hire a skilled laborer and someone who you can depend on and clocks in and out and, um, you know, can, can take instruction and do what needs to be done and, and um, you know, get the job done that way. And if, and if you really are interested in passing down your knowledge and um, cultivating the next generation of farmers and having young, uh, youthful enthusiasm and energy come into your farm year in, year in, year, in and year out, but um, people with very little skill and, and who, who do want to learn, then a program such as ours might be a good fit for you. And those programs are good. They're very helpful for mentoring young farmers. If you can help, you should help. But there's really no way to learn farming unless you do get in the field and, and work side by side with someone who is willing to pass down their knowledge and help you uh, learn those skills. Very few of them have gotten the opportunity to really get in there, get their hands dirty, and, and see how it feels to live in a seasonal rhythm and get up day in and day out and be um, in the field and, and working with somebody who's, who's teaching you and lending their, their knowledge and perhaps all the mistakes that they've had to make over the years. So you'll want to contact organizations like Rogue Farm Corps that are near you. Your local extension office will have information on many such opportunities. Uh, So finally, what about volunteers? Well, after hearing everything thus far, you might imagine that having a volunteer worker just isn't that simple. You are right. 
There's really no such thing as a volunteer worker in the realm of employment law. If you bring in volunteer work, you're risking a lot. Josie, who we talked to a few minutes ago, learned that the hard way. We were busted by the state insurance fund for having volunteers. And they said, that's illegal, you can't do that. We could fine you this much, you know, change it immediately. And Josie was just bringing in volunteers to pick surplus apples and other vegetables and fruit uh, for the food bank. The interesting thing is, is that I was busted and the volunteers were doing the exact same thing that they still do. They were gleaning for the food bank. I didn't have a nonprofit sponsor the activity before. Um, the activity was just happening within our organization, and um, a for-profit business can't have volunteers. So they were looking at those people as volunteering for me, even if that produce is going towards a charitable organization. The labor was still happening for me. So then just bringing in the food bank and they taking responsibility for that labor or that volunteer labor is the change. Um, I don't, I can't say that I 100% agree with it. Um, I thought, you know, we, we changed our policy for it. So eventually Josie hooked up with the food bank as a nonprofit sponsor. And at that point, the organization handled everything, and Josie gained the satisfaction of knowing that her extra fruit was going to a good cause, and that people were getting some time on the farm doing simple stuff. I have um, two wonderful coordinators that, that have helped me with this. So um, these are two people that have been involved with my farm from the start, from being CSA members, then one of them became an employee and um, became great and fast friends. And um, these are people that really are community leaders. So they volunteer, I bet, somewhere every day of the week, I imagine. And um, when we decided to go with volunteers, they helped me coordinate with the Idaho Food Bank. I'm in an agreement with the Idaho Food Bank that on Tuesdays, people can come out to the farm and work at Peaceful Belly, and then we glean parts of the year for the food bank during this volunteership. And the idea is that labor or that volunteer that they're doing is going towards the food bank. And, and we glean a lot of out of the field, so all of our seconds um, get gleaned instead of you know, like squash that is an inch too large to go to grocery stores instead of getting picked off the vine and thrown in the pathway, you know, goes towards the food bank and those gleaners come in. Or if my employees pick it, then it stays in the wash station until the food bank truck comes on Tuesdays right after the gleaners leave. So they, the volunteers come to the farm. Um, they get a training. Usually it's kind of the same group of people, give or take a few. Uh, they write their name down on, you know, a piece of paper saying, yes, they're here, what their hours are, they're here for the for the food bank, and um, then we kind of set them out on the task for the day. It's not a, a very long time that they're there, and my farm's not dependent upon them showing up. And Josie also manages the risk of having people volunteer on her farm to ensure that the people that come out or volunteer don't get hurt is um, 
first, they don't work very long. They don't have to worry about exhaustion or heat stroke or dehydration, which probably are my largest fears for people that work out here. Those are the things that I see happen most mm -hmm. frequently. Also, in kind of the picking that they do, um, they're not using a lot of equipment, so I don't have to worry about as much about them um, hurting themselves with equipment. And they're always giving instructions you know, um, or tutorials on how to do it or how something needs to be done properly. So to sum it all up, people who work for you on the farm will, in most all cases, be employees or independent contractors. In those few exceptions, they'll basically be farmers in training, which means you're working with an institution of some kind and a curriculum, or in very few cases, volunteers who are there to help with some cause also connected to another institution. Now, we don't want to discourage you from doing any of that, bringing people in to train or help the community. That's all part of a cycle of farming and community relationships that we want you to enjoy doing. Ask any farmer that I know, and they will tell you they're still learning, <laughs> um, even after 20 or 25 years. And now here's a short segment on workers' compensation. Workers' comp is a form of insurance. Your state will tell you exactly which workers require that insurance. But remember, we're talking about risk management, and good insurance is always a good form of risk management. Your employees can sue you if they're injured, or more likely, even if they don't want to sue you, their health insurance companies might sue you in the employee's name. Well, I certainly would say that getting workers' compensation for all of your farm workers, regardless of what you call them, whether they're employees or volunteers or interns, to be sure that there's some insurance coverage for worker injuries because farming can be a relatively dangerous working situation and environment and accidents do happen. You know, you can make these agreements with your workers and other situations and contracts, but the employment law, there's no exceptions. And so if a worker gets hurt, regardless of whether the worker is fine with not filing a lawsuit against you or anything like that, their insurance company has a right to do that. And so you're still going to get yourself in a mess. If it feels hard to be required to purchase this insurance, perhaps a little perspective can help. How you doing, Matt? That, again, is one of the professors I had in law school, Mike Duff. He teaches, blogs, and writes about workers' compensation and other labor issues. My name is Michael Duff. I'm a professor of law at the University of Wyoming uh, College of Law. I specialize in uh, labor and employment law generally. I, for a lot of my career, I've done uh, labor relations law, but uh, I, uh, I also have specialized in workers' compensation law. I practiced workers' compensation law for a couple of years. I'm currently a member of the, uh, the board of directors of the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers. Uh, I'm also a member of the National Academy of uh, Social Insurance, uh, and I also handle these kinds of issues as a fellow of the uh, American Bar Foundation. He's even written a book about workers' compensation law. Uh, I asked him the title of the book. Uh, it's called uh, Workers' Compensation Law. That's a pretty straight-up title. So I asked him a pretty straight-up question. Why does workers' compensation exist? 
It exists because at the uh, turn of the century, when uh, industrialism was really intensifying, and primarily as a result of uh, uh, heavy industry and, uh, and trains, the railroads, there was a uh, really a crisis of industrial injury in the United States. And it boiled down to the problem that ordinary injured workers had trying to make out a case under the then existing law that they were entitled to uh, remedies for being injured. And without getting into details, uh, it was just very easy for them to lose. There were lots of traps for the unwary and the sort of the ordinary court cases. And so a, a pretty remarkable decision was made at uh, in around 1910, 1911, that, you know, we, we need a different kind of system, a system that had been constructed already in uh, Germany and England, and the essentials of the system um, uh, basically involved a what's called a quid pro quo. You workers that are having such a hard time proving your claims, your your ordinary court cases, what we're going to do is give you a a less substantial, arguably, but more certain remedy of two thirds of your uh, average weekly wage and uh, reimbursement for any medical expenses uh, in connection with your work injury. Now, what was unusual about this is that uh, you're going to get that two-thirds whether the employer was negligent or not. We're just going to have this kind of uh, insurance system, which is basically what it is. Everybody hopefully is going to get enough. They're going to get what they need to avoid destitution, and uh, parties aren't going to be subject to the risk of litigation. And by the way, the reason employers bought into this scheme was because it, insulate, it insulated them and continues to insulate them from uh, court cases. So the exclusive remedy of an injured worker is uh, for workers' uh, compensation. So it was really a big uh, social deal, a quid pro quo. I then asked Professor Duff what he would say to farm employers to really sell them on the benefits of workers' compensation. Well, I think what I would focus on is what you get out of the deal, and what you get out of the deal is this insulation from a civil lawsuit. And just to, so everybody understands what the, the distinction between the two uh, uh, is, the main distinction is the, the, the amount of liability. So if uh, somebody who is, uh, let's, let's imagine this thing called workers' comp didn't exist, all right, and what we had uh, was the... Uh, the normal civil court system, right? The normal rules of of, um, of uh, the civil courts. So uh, you'd be operating under something called the negligence regime, and and what negligence means is um, uh, that uh, everybody in the world has a duty to act as a reasonably prudent person would under the circumstances. If you don't do that, you can be sued, and if you're found to have breached your duty of care, you can be liable for the foreseeable consequences of that uh, breach. And what that could mean is that if I fall off a ladder and, and uh, I'm working on your farm, and assuming that I'm classified as an employee, right, my remedy would be limited of two-thirds of my average weekly wage at the time that I was working um, uh, on the farm for as long as I'm out of work, plus reimbursement for, uh, for medical costs. And, uh, and actually, um, as a small business, what, I, what it would, as a practical matter, mean is that I have to pay workers' comp premiums, right? But that would be the limit of my liability. If, on the other hand, uh, I, as an employee, uh, I was protected by the uh, by the civil negligence system, or as an employer, uh, you were liable to the civil negligence system to the extent that you were deemed legally careless, so careless in a way that would bring on liability, 
then in theory, that individual who got hurt would be entitled to compensatory damages, which could be everything from, you know, wages that I that I would have been paid but uh, didn't get because I was hurt. Uh, maybe as a result of falling off the ladder, um, I was going to enter into a business deal. And because I got hurt, I couldn't show up to uh, enter into that business deal. And I want to argue that I would have made uh, $5 million on that business deal. Well, that would be part of the compensatory damage package, which is much broader than uh, than wages very often. Uh, think about all the kinds of things that somebody could be responsible for if they acted uh, negligently, uh, you know, things that that person wasn't able to do, loss of consortium, um, all kinds of things. Anyone who's ever been sued by another individual knows that it's a real pain in the butt. If somebody thought that what um, what I did as a small employer was especially careless uh, and wanted to uh, deter other employers from doing similar things in the future, uh, I might be liable for punitive damages. And so we hope this little history lesson has made everyone aware of the way workers' compensation figures into risk management on the farm. There's so many, I kind of forget all the actual names. (laughs) We have so many resources on employment law for your farm that we can't possibly list them all here. And that includes resources on some things we haven't had the opportunity to discuss on the podcast. We've listed some of those back at the end of the the first employment law podcast. Go to farmcommons.org, click resources, Scroll down to workers slash employees and click on that and start looking. What we haven't talked about? Well, a a few things. Immigration law as applied to farm workers, split pay and benefits like feeding those working on your farm, and the list goes on. We could probably do an eight-hour seminar and it still wouldn't be enough time to cover all of the employment law facets of farming. There are a couple of things we left out here that are worth mentioning. First, the distinction between farm and non-farm labor, uh, even for tasks that people do on the farm. Here's Rachel, our executive director. Farm employment laws are often different than regular employment laws. So whereas, you know, the gas station down the road might have certain rules about rates that can rates of pay for employees and workers comp, the farm has different rules. And those rules attach to the type of labor that the farm is assigning. So it can get pretty complicated. Typically, agricultural labor means the very obvious. Picking food, working with the animals directly. And while non-agricultural labor means things like selling your products or keeping up with the books, even if you do that on the land where the farming also occurs. This becomes important for things like exemptions in taxation or payroll or minimum wage or overtime. It's not a bad idea to consult an attorney about it or at least talk to your accountant when preparing taxes or thinking that you might have exemptions to apply. We also haven't talked about minimum wage and other exemptions for agricultural workers. These vary widely by state. There are some federal exemptions, um, but since we're concentrating on risk management, it seems least risky to pay workers minimum wage. But you should see what agricultural exemptions exist in your state regardless of whether you think it might apply to those working on your farm. Treating workers as people you're responsible for 
if you can't hire them as legitimate independent contractors, is the least risky way to have people work on your farm. And many would say that treating workers as people you're responsible for is also the most ethical way to have workers on your farm. And after all, good relationships are the key to successful farming. We have not and will not cover everything in these podcasts, and we aren't giving legal advice. Talk to an attorney if you have specific questions about your farming situation. This material is funded in partnership with the U.S. Department of Agriculture Risk Management Agency. Music comes courtesy of Huma Huma and Jason Shaw and Audionautics Music under a Creative Commons license. The executive director of Farm Commons is Rachel Armstrong. Our lead research attorney is Aaron Hannum, and I'm Matt Stannard. Want to contact us? Visit farmcommons.org and click contact.